Well, uh, all right, let's get started. Um, hi, everyone. Andy Richter here with another uh, another uh, episode, edition. Uh, I don't know, episode, I guess, of uh, The Three Questions. And today I am talking uh, with Tony Dokopil. You, you were close. I, I'm going to jump in. I'm going to jump in, Andy, and don't feel bad for a second about what I'm about to do here because uh, my my last name was mispronounced at my graduation in high school. That's how complicated oh it is. The name, the name is, uh, is never. And as a result, I continue to, infl- I don't, because people always screw my name up and I, and I'm good with it. I have, I'm very carefree about other people's names, which it turns out they get upset about it. They like when in, right. my, in the news business, they really want you to say it right. But I, so it's like the couple, uh, Decopel. yes. Okay. My, uh, my, uh, my ancestors would be very happy if I, if I continued with the proper Czech, not Slovakian pronunciation of Decopel. Decopel. Yes, yeah. It's Decopel, and and yeah, it's 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 a Czech word. Uh, anyway, yeah. it's a it's a really it's an unwieldy. What does it mean? In, it in means Czech. it means um I sold it all or or sold out all gone, uh, <laughs> which was an a, which, a fitting a fitting last name for my father, who as you may know was uh for his only professional career as a grown up a drug dealer. Um, yes. Know, so selling it all was a great we thing. Will, we will get to that. Well, I was also going to say it's also good for somebody that's on television. I don't know. You know, you know anything in the in the vicinity or ballpark of uh, of selling out? I don't know. Maybe that could be used against you. <laughs> nah, it's okay. <laughs> I don't think there's anybody on television that, that can feel like they haven't leveraged their soul in some in some small way. There are compromises to be made. Yeah, dozens of times a day you do it. You know, it's uh, if you if you do this for a living in a capitalist society, there's going to be some amount of selling your art and and you might as well just kind of get used to it and then feel your way through to like what feels right and what feels wrong. And, you know, but I just you know, I mean, I came for I went to film school and I came from a bunch of guys that are like, I would never sell out. And it's kind of like, yeah. why not? Yeah. No, and we, we should yeah. we should we should we should disclose to people that I'm actually paying you for this interview, for this publicity. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Can we can we talk about what we just talked about about with Katie? Yeah. You want to repeat that? Yes. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe a year ago or so uh, when we were in full full zoom times i you know i wasn't doing any in studio interviews and i reached out to your wife katie tur on uh twitter we are uh, mutuals and i said hey would you ever want to you know would you ever want to be on uh, the podcast and i'm a fan of you and your husband and and then tell them what happened. So, well, uh, unbeknownst to you, I was right here where I am right now, like 20 feet from the naked cowboy in Times Square. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't get a lot of sleep because uh, I'm on a morning show. And I read her direct messages because right. I've been like sock puppeting her on on uh, on Twitter with authorization because she's been off of it from from like before it was cool. So it wasn't working for her, but she still had a professional need to check the messages every now and then. So I was the one doing it. And uh, and so we got the message from you and me being a fan, uh, read it, uh, very excited for Tony and wrote back, oh, my God, that's going to be amazing. Tony's going to be so excited. And then what did you say to Tony, unbeknownst to you, that Tony was the one you were talking to? I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I maybe I wasn't clear. I only want you on the podcast. Something along. Those I think lines. You, it was like never in a million years. Actually, what I? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no checks. 
no, we have no check policy. Oh, man, the name is too hard to say. I just don't trust myself with it. Katie told me, then I think later she she mentioned it to me. Or you, did you mention it to me? I thought she did. I don't know. It, it came around and, and you became aware of it. I thought it was, I tucked it away as a funny story. But I also thought yeah, yeah. in my back, back of my mind, like, you know, I get it. I, I've been with Katie for almost eight years now. She's always been the more well-known of the two people in the household on TV. And so, yeah. like, I, if you never invited me on, I would have uh, felt no ill will toward Andy Richter. I would have been. Well, no, I was I was happy to find out that you were a fan. And then when I talked to her, she told me what a fan you are of this podcast, which yeah. is always nice to hear because I I don't ever I'm always surprised when someone just out in the world says, hey, I like your podcast and I listen to it. So the reason I like it is is actually because it doesn't have a clear like this is where it's going. There's not an agenda when you come on. It's an unstructured conversation. And out of that, it's sort of like letting yeast work in bread, like it leavens itself and it, it finds interesting places. And and what you do, that's really great as an interviewer that I wish I could do, you know, in, in broadcast television, but we never really can. You can't have the time. You let yeah. the conversation breathe and people yeah. come to you. Yeah, so I've done a lot of dishes listening to to Andy Richter's oh, three good. questions. Yeah, well, thank you so much. I mean, I, that is like very, very gratifying to hear. So, all right, so you are originally a Florida boy, correct? I'm a Florida boy. I'm uh, kind of a Southerner in general. Um, I, you know, we were talking earlier with a couple uh, of of your colleagues about like words that are hard to say for people on TV or on broadcast, and like you know, um, I really struggle with the word W A T E R which a lot of people think has a T in it, but I say it W-A-R-D-E-R, water. Water. Yeah, water, yeah. which is kind of a, a South Florida, Maryland thing. Yeah, there's. it's like on the wire when it's like Wooter yeah. or Philly. You know, there's, yeah, there's weird ones there. Uh, but yeah, I grew up in Florida, uh, you know, didn't wear a shirt or shoes until I was like 14. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I really actually terribly miss uh, Florida. I, um, uh, I We moved away when I was in fifth grade. And um, it just was like fractured the whole thing in two. And I always, I often think, even to this day in my 40s, like, I wonder how my life would be different if I continued to be a Florida boy. Because it's, yeah. it's such a distinctive place. It's a very distinctive place. And in, it can be really wonderful. And then, and then all, but also be this sort of like the Florida that we really, that is screaming from the headlines today. Yeah, yeah. I should clarify for people that like, you know, Florida's a big place and I'm not from North Florida, which people talk about being like distinct from the South. I'm from South Florida, right? So I grew up yeah, in yeah. In, uh, in Miami, uh, in in South Miami, really. And um, when you're a little kid there, like it was a genuinely wild place. Like you would, you would take a right-hand turn down a road by your house and then the road would end and then it would just be like gravel and then it would be jungle and then you would feel like a dinosaur from Jurassic Park is going to come around the palm frond. It, it like feels yeah. primordial, which was great. And you, uh, well, you, you mentioned it. Your your dad was just a major weed dealer. And you say he never had any other job? No, this is a guy, not not in true adult life, right? So this is a guy who went to college, uh, you know, classic baby boomer, went to a Catholic private school, born in New York and then New Jersey. Uh, and... Um, could have done really anything with his life, uh, but it was the 70s and weed seemed, if you could remember back, and most people can't, like weed actually had a moment in the early 70s where it seemed like it was edging toward legality. Mm -hmm. Time Magazine, Newsweek, they were putting it on the cover with questions like, is it time for legalization? States were decriminalizing and he felt like, hey, you know, I love doing the stuff. 
love it. It makes people happy, right? Love, yeah. love spreading happiness. And it feels like this is becoming legal. So maybe I should get in on it, right? It'd be like if ice cream was being legalized today, you'd be like, oh, wow, I should start selling ice cream. I'm going to get a truck right yeah, now. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, and then, so he started doing it for five years, six years, seven years. And then, you know, before you know it, it's no longer the early 70s, it's the late 70s. And the attitude toward pot has completely reversed. Reagan yeah. is coming into power. Uh, you know, the devil weed is now what people view marijuana as. And by that point, though, he's in his 30s. He's done nothing else with his life. And so he has no choice, really, but to continue in this one and only profession. Yeah. And we lived in Miami uh, only for the kicks. Like his his market was uh, Maryland and North. That's where he sold. And but he lived in Miami just like, you know, it's like if you're in finance, you live in New York. Like that's where right. the good bars are. Like in Miami, if you were a drug dealer in the eighties, it was like, that's the place to be. You know, I'm going to go to yeah. the, the colony hotel. I'm going to have a boat in the Harbor. I'm going to get my dioxiders and my, not going to wear a shirt and I'm going to have a good time. And how did he get the weed up to Maryland then? So he had a great uh, system with his partners where uh, th there was one guy who would go to Columbia and then the guy in Columbia would get it on uh, a big uh, seagoing tanker which is used to to bring fresh water between the the islands and the Caribbean. Uh -huh. That guy would bring it to you know point A, uh, and then sailboats from the north that were going, uh, you know, rich people's sailboats that were going between the islands and like you know Nantucket. Yeah, uh, they would be filled up, unbeknownst to their owners, with weed, uh, and then sailed up the coast. And then my dad wow. would pick the landing spots from Maryland all the way up to Maine. And he was the guy in the tall grass, you know, at 3 a.m. Wow. waiting for the boat to come in and with the truck pulled up to the dock. Uh, and then they'd go to a safe house. Uh, it was already cleaned, you know, no seeds. Um, it was been, it'd been worked on. Uh, and then and he was, was it wrapped out. because how do they keep it the smell, you know? Because oh, my God. They, they called it the green elephant uh, yeah. because it was a real craft because the smell was so bad um yeah it, it, it had bugs in it you know like tarantulas would crawl out of it you'd get bitten by things uh it the, the smell was everywhere uh, the birds would come after it if it was the summertime i mean like it, it, <laughs> like there was one one story in particular where they filled a barn in connecticut with it and then they all went to sleep or passed out you pick and then the next morning it was like birds had built nests all over the barn and there was like basically no pot left and a lot of evidence <laughs> everywhere <laughs> And very mellow birds, and the and the <laughs> and the birds were singing Bob Marley tunes. It was amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's. I mean, that's incredible because, you know, I mean, out out here in L.A., there's you know, there's there's dispensaries everywhere, and uh, I'm living in East L.A. right now, and there's one right where the five and the ten meet, and you can, you know you see the building from the highway, but driving by. On the on the five at sixty miles an hour, you can smell weed, and that's yeah. not with the windows open. That's just like with through the the vents coming through. Maybe people were just so naive, you know. Like maybe these rich people were like, "Oh, it smells a little skunky around here today." I mean, I think part of it was that the the weed today really is more potent. Um, yeah. it's stickier. It's stickier. Yeah. It's more fragrant. If you get a high time magazine off of eBay. High Times yeah. was like the playboy of pot, right? Like the centerfold right. instead of a naked lady, it was like naked pot. It was a pot. big bud. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. a bud. If you get a High Times from the 70s or early 80s and you look at the quality of the weed, 
It looks yeah. like something you scraped off your lawnmower on a wet day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that uh, that is true. Yeah, it just was different. And in, in fact, it's so different that my dad, you know, after doing federal time for dealing, uh, now lives in in Boston or in in uh, Cambridge in Massachusetts, and it's legal there now. And he's gone to a dispensary and he's bought it. And he's like, for him, it's like heroin. He's like, I can't even. Yeah, I, I just sit on the couch. Too strong. Did yeah. your mom, was your mom aware of what your dad did for a living? Yeah. No, they were all in. It was a whole family business. Uh, my mom yeah. got a loan from her, from her father to buy the first kilo. Uh, wow. And my uncle was involved. And, you know, they really felt, and history has actually proven this out, that they were on the right side of the law, ultimately, and that they were yeah. sp spreading happiness. And, um, yeah, they got no shame about it. I don't think they should. I mean, as you say... It's been borne out that now it's a grown-up substance, but it certainly doesn't warrant the kind of demonization that it that it had to go through for all those years, you know. Yeah. And all that nonsense about a gateway drug. It's like, as I've said before, it's a it's a gateway drug to carbs past 10 p.m. That's the only thing it's Yeah, it's a it's a gateway to bad philosophy. Uh you know? yeah. Did you feel like, was there like a sense of insecurity in your house because of that? Because, you know, the, your dad doesn't, it's not really a job and it's, you know, and it's, it's, it's always got, there's always got to be stress involved when you're making your money 100% illegally. Totally. I mean, I, I think it, you know, they may have been like, you know, spreading happiness and, and, uh, and, and, and all the rest with their friends, but it was like, it fucked me up pretty good. Uh, and, you yeah. know, to this day, even because, um, you know, it's funny when I when I meet people for the first time here, I'll, I'll do I'll name drop for you here. This okay. will be fun. Yeah. All right. So last weekend, uh, Katie and I were in London uh, and we were on vacation and we were in a hotel having uh, a meal. And Chris Rock uh, is yes. there. Have you heard of Chris Rock? He's a former. Uh, <laughs> I have. He's a former host of the Oscars. Um, yes. Anyway, he watches our show. He's the slap guy. He's the slap guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, he comes over because he watches our our morning show. He was like, oh, "I mostly watch Gail, but you slide in there." And I was like, "Thanks, Chris. Real confidence booster." Um, <laughs> uh, but he's a, he's kind of a news junkie, right? So he sits down, and yeah. we end up talking for a long time. And he starts making some points about various things in the news. And one thing that he made a point about was like, um, you know, everybody should be treated in the eyes of the law as though they were you. And he's making reference to me, and because when he sees me. He doesn't see he sees a guy who, you know, has has every level of privilege you can imagine in society. Right. Like, yeah, full head of hair, you know, looks like he was a general in the military in the 1950s and you know, played a sport. Um, and yeah. and like people think that my dad is JFK or like my dad is the dean of Middlebury College, you know, like they. Yeah. yeah. And in fact, I'm always like, I. so the world sees me as a guy who's like been winning. But in fact, my childhood was was pretty rocky because of how, yeah. you know, dad was that he was selling, but he was also using he was showing up and then not showing up, you know, he, middle of the night stuff, wow. weird people in the house like it was. And then when we when we left, we, we had lots of money when things were going good. Yeah, as, as you do. But then when he got busted, the money just vanished. And that yeah. is like a really shaky. That's a confusing thing when you're 11 years old. And then the other thing that's really was confusing is the, the the whole side of my family, my grandmother, my cousins, my uncles that were part of our network down in Florida, not in the business, just regular people. 
I never saw them. Like I never saw my grandmother again because we were fleeing. What happened was my dad went to prison to make it really complicated. My stepfather, who was his partner, uh, marries my mom to lock her off as a witness. And we, we flee from, from anybody who could find us in exact retribution from my father telling tales because he cooperated with the feds. So uh, it was a really rocky upbringing. And so when I walk into a room today, people see me one way, but like my, my emotional reality inside is very different because my upbringing right. was in other ways, like quite uh, uh, disadvantageous, let's say. Yeah. Yeah. So your mom married your stepfather. Was it, was they, were they having a relationship or was it purely for, because you can't testify against your spouse? There are differing opinions on on the matter. Um, they were definitely yeah. friendly. They were definitely close. Um, we were all one big, you know, uh, unit business wise and also friend and family wise. But you know, it it definitely helped the situation once my dad was out of the picture. That my my stepfather was somebody she couldn't she could be completely open with. Like when she yeah. when she and this literally happened. We got into Winnebago, and we drove to New Mexico from Florida. Yeah. And and we dug up a cooler of money that my dad had had buried uh, in the base of a house where some cousins lived. When we did that, like that's something she didn't have to keep from my stepfather because he knew sure. what was going on. Whereas if she's just dating some guy she met in Coconut Grove, like yeah, <laughs> she'd yeah, have to make yeah. up a story about like right. you know why we're going to New Mexico. Wow, uh, it was convenient too. Can't you tell my love's a growing? Did you ever get a sense from your mom that that she felt bad for a, the life that she was giving you, or you know? What I've come to realize now that you know, as a parent myself, and like I, you know, I, I work in the news industry. It's chaotic. Uh, we're not always our best when we're home. We're not always fully present. We're not like the perfect parents we'd all like to be all the time. Nobody yeah. is. You realize that she was doing the absolute best that she could, and on top of that. You don't have to be the greatest parent of all time. You just need to be good, right? And she was yeah, she yeah. was very good. You know, she was loving. She was present when I needed her. Amidst yeah. all the turmoil around us, she was steady. Uh, and and I ended up devoted to her. And that was a way that I was able to kind of find my path in life. It was I wanted to live up to her expectations, which is actually a great motivator. So yeah, yeah she was good. Are you an only child, by the way? I'm an only child. They were never married. They were doing tons of drugs. They didn't even think they could get pregnant. I was like, wow. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. So, well, that's a nice thing that, you know, yeah. we didn't think that you could make it through the drugs. <laughs> yeah. The sperm, you know, whether the sperm or the egg, whichever one was yeah. very strong. You know? <laughs> that's exactly the anecdote. You know, they just sort of gets told over wine. And you're like, oh, no, <laughs> not how I would have done. That's not how we do it these days, mom. But that's yeah. it. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Well, how, I mean, does it, at a certain point, does it settle down? I mean, do you, yeah. uh, how long are you sort of on the lamb? For my entire uh, teenage years, uh, the, that whole part of the family is gone and we have no money. My nickname, you know, we're, I'm going to a, a good public, I go, I go from private school to a public school and from having money to being a kid that my nickname in high school is literally poor boy. You know, it's all relative. There's definitely yeah. people that are worse off, but um, it only begins to shift when I get into journalism and I have this like sense of instability inside. And I don't know where it really comes from because I don't have answers to what was really going on with my family. 
And I, I, when you become a journalist, one of the things you learn is like how to call the federal government and get court cases. And so I called on a whim and asked for the case, any cases tied to my last name, which, as you know, is pretty unique. Yeah. Um, and I, I got a, a fax back. This is in the days of faxes from the federal archive, like the big archive, the one that has like Al Capone's records in it. They don't keep everything. They only keep the 2% of stuff that's really important. And it was the indictment that brought my dad in. Uh, and it was for 17 fucking tons of marijuana in one job. Oh my God. It was a $10 million wholesale <laughs> wow. job in 1986. And, and I, I was in New York, I was working for the old Newsweek magazine and I was like flabbergasted. I was like, holy shit. Like I knew they were into stuff. I didn't know they were into this. Yeah. So I called my mom and I was like, mom, I'm looking at an indictment here from he ended up getting arrested in 91. But the job was 86. I was like, I'm looking at an indictment here from 91. And it says Big Tony sold 17 tons of marijuana in a single job. Do you know anything about that? And she was like, oh, honey, we were going to tell you. And I was like, when, <laughs> when were you going to tell me? I, I'm almost 30. I'm almost 30. <laughs> it's like We were saving it for our deathbed confession. We were. <laughs> It was amazing. Yeah, it was quite a it was quite a moment. Uh, it was like wow. reporting on your own family. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, was it the size of the of that particular shipment, or was that was that like sort of one of many of similar? One of many. Each? That's they brought. They would wow. bring in one major job every year, and that job in particular, uh, it was enough marijuana to roll a joint for everybody in college in America at that time. And it was actually covered. <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was actually, it was actually covered in New York magazine, uh, because prior to that, there had been a huge crackdown, uh, by the Reagan administration on home grows, like the domestic market. They were sure. ripping up every plant in California, that market that was like beginning to be a thing that people did grow it in America. They ripped everything up and New York Magazine had a big story about how there was reefer sadness in New York City. And then my dad and his partners, they they turned that frown upside down with their 17 tons, <laughs> just blizzard. Oh, wow. What what room is there for you and your identity in this in this childhood with all this stress going on and this, you know, all these like. Adults, like, they're not evil or anything, but there are, like, they're not providing a, a, a fertile environment for a healthy, emotionally, mentally healthy child. What is young Tony, or were you little Tony since he was big Tony? I was little. I was little Tony. Yeah. Like, yeah. like true, like a true mob family. There's big right, Tony right. and little Tony. Well, what was, I mean, what was little Tony, did little Tony make himself known? Did little Tony try and... Or did little Tony just kind of keep quiet and to get along? Kids always rebel, it seems, against their parents. And if you're most times your parents are, you know, dentists and insurance brokers or whatever, and then you're the one that goes crazy and wild. But when your father is the one going crazy and wild, you end up being quite a straight edge. So yeah. I was real serious about getting a college scholarship. And then I got one. And then I, I was... I went to the school that gave me the most money to be responsible. And then I worked really hard. And like, so I was like this really tight ass rule follower. They used to call me the, uh, the white sheep of the family. In other words, like they're all black sheep. <laughs> sure. Sure. <laughs> sure. I'm the white sheep. Yeah. 
What were you afraid would happen? I mean, were you just trying to not be like them because they? Yeah, because I just I was, and- there's a lot of anger that you have. I don't have it anymore, you know, because now like it actually it actually ended up being the best possible like training for what I do now uh, because yeah. I, we moved. I, I met a lot of people. Uh, it, it forced me to develop skills with new people. I was good with conversation, like the things. It in all's well that ends well, and like everything is golden now, right? I can't believe w- how well it's turned out, and I feel great. And so yeah. I don't have any anger, no bitterness anymore. But for a long time, there was a lot of of anger, and I and I I felt like you know when I was when I was broke in my in my twenties, and I didn't have anything going professionally, and I didn't have any introductions, I didn't have any connections. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of anger and frustration with them, and I and I felt like I couldn't. Couldn't enjoy want my twenties the way other people did because I also mm-hmm. felt like my dad was such a good example of a guy who had advantages and then tried a couple doors and behind those doors there was drugs, money, and girls and he just like basically lost his life to it, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so I didn't want that to happen. Uh, but now it's like now it's hilarious. So you know, ultimately I wrote a book about this, and in the book there's like all kinds of weird sex with my with my parents, which is a very strange thing to report on as a journalist. An even stranger thing to then write. And then I, I sent the book to my father and my father read the whole thing. And, and then he called me and he was like, Tony, I like the book. I do, but there's not enough hookers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, dad. Yeah. Okay. I'll let, I'll let the publishing house know. We need to get some more hookers in yeah. there. Yeah. There's a five some oh, in boy. there, dad. Is that not enough for you? No. Oh my goodness. And this is your parents are sharing all of this? Yeah. Like they shared all of, yeah. Well, ultimately, I mean, once, once you keep a secret more or less for 30 years and then someone comes waving the indictment and the, and the court case, then you kind of yeah. have to come to the table and be like, okay, son, we'll, we'll answer some questions. And I'm actually, I owe them an, an apology 100% because like when, when they were talking and when I was writing the book, this was definitely me like exacting bitter revenge. Uh, and, that, and now we're like 10 years on and, uh, and I love them both dearly and I, and I have kids of my own and I feel stupid for being as hard on them as I was. It was like an aggressive airing of their laundry. Yes. It was like, a you kept this for me and you, and you, and my life was really chaotic, uh, and confusing as a result. And so now I'm going to just, yeah, I'm going to air it all and I'm going to get paid for it. And, uh, and, and, and it was like, it was not. The book succeeded as journalism. It failed as memoir because it didn't have any genuine reconciliation and wisdom about like life is complicated mm. and nobody is yeah, perfectly yeah. good or perfectly bad. Yeah. But then again, they didn't need to tell you about fivesomes. Like, did you press them to tell you about <laughs> fivesomes? No, I didn't press them. It wasn't, you know, a grilling. Uh, but my yeah. my my father is. You know, I have a theory about criminals in general, and he really is like the criminal of the group uh, that that they actually love what they're doing and they're proud of it and they want their exploits to be known. And that's ultimately why yeah. they get caught. And so like he was he was happy to talk about, you know, all the all the blow and the hookers and the lost money yeah. and the Mercedes and, the, you know, the cruising yacht and all the shit that that, you know, frankly, people go get into that business in the 80s in Miami to enjoy. Like, that was kind yeah. of the point. Not a, It wasn't like a, a regrettable side effect. No, that was why you do it. Yeah. Do you think he was a criminal before he was a criminal or being a criminal? You know what I mean? Like, did he yeah. did he have the, a kind of criminal's mentality growing up? You know, do you think that's who he was? 
That's or a is. really interesting question. Um, no, I think he was in love. I think at some point he was a very literary guy. He read a lot of books. Uh, he was an English major in college. And I think he fell in love with the old idea of the American outlaw. Yeah. And he, and so the, you know, the outlaw is like, is a bad guy, but also kind of a good guy. Right. And so that's the perfect role for him as a drug dealer, uh, particularly a dealer of weed. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Because it's, you know, it's the soft and cuddly drug dealer. Yeah, the, it's like, you know, you know like not the maybe... life ruining drug dealer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When do you start to sort of gravitate towards journalism? When do you start to think like, I want to be a journalist? And what was it about it that made you feel like it was the thing you wanted to do? So I played baseball in college uh, and, and I, I had I played in three different college summer leagues, uh, went around the country with that, met a lot of people. And uh, when I started reading a lot on like the buses, the bus rides are like 12 hours long and uh, yeah. I did a lot of reading. So then I started like thinking, oh, maybe I'll be like a, a big swashbuckling nonfiction writer or something. Uh, and then I realized, oh, well, you could just get paid for writing magazine articles. So I got interested in doing that and and got an internship at Newsweek, which at the time, like people forget it. it basically, Newsweek is like owned by a cult now. I don't even know who... It's like the saddest. Uh, it's very weird. It's I don't really, really know weird. What's going on. I know it's it's so sad. It's like uh, you know that's where I spent my formative years in journalism. But at the time, like John Meacham was the editor, Mark Whitaker before that, uh, and like everybody who I ever read and loved growing up worked there, and and they sent me everywhere, uh, and I got to meet all these you know additional people, and I, I fell in love with just like not celebrity journalism, not talking to famous people, not splashy pieces, but like just regular, like general assignment, wander the country and find interesting stories, journalism. And I ended up being like one of the last people in that old era of media who got paid to go to all 50 states and do interesting stories. Uh, and, yeah. and, it, and I just fell in love with it. And now I get to continue a version of that with television. Um, yeah. And it's, it's, just, it's really like, I can't, uh, it's like part, part show business because you got to get people in the tent. Yeah. You got to get people yeah. interested. Yeah. And it's television. It's, it's part theater. It's still television. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's still television. Yeah. It's part theater. Cause you're, you know, you've got to ad lib a lot and you get, you're like kind of, you know, you're scripting things in your head and trying to perform it. But then it's also like kind of teaching. It's almost like educational or preaching even, you know, like you want people to understand something and you, you deeply want them to get it. Um, yeah. So I just it hits on so many levels. I love it so much. There's sort of a pursuit of truth is at the is at the, you know, is at the center of it. And do you think that was in reaction to your upbringing? No, I don't. Because I actually don't. You know, one kind of there is one type of journalism that is pursuit of truth with a capital T and defense of democracy with a capital D, yeah. you know, for love of country almost. And and that that's not the kind of journalism that I I I you know, that's an important component of it. But journalism is also anything of interest to people. Literally, yeah, any yeah. news is anything that people want to talk about. Telling stories. And and and, and so, um, you know, I, I like doing pieces on uh, not exposing things or, you know, pinning people down or making people look stupid. Uh, I like trying to elucidate something that's complex. Uh, you know, there's lots of examples. Also, just like crazy adventure stories. Like, you know, I went to the bottom of the Pacific in a freaking submarine. I, I did space oh, wow. training. Uh, you know, I, I camped out on a glacier in Alaska with special operations on a training mission. Like, I, I went the whole length of the Keystone Pipeline. It's like I've done crazy stuff. Um, yeah. I went and gambled in Monaco. Like, all, like, just 
these are just experiences that you then bring to people in a way that is I don't know, kind of documentary. And do they need to know about it? They don't need to know about it, but hopefully you make them want to know about it, you know? Yeah. I mean, you kind of touched on it. It does kind of seem that the sort of rootless upbringing allows you to be comfortable in these kind of constantly changing scenarios, because I think, you know, a lot of people would be, you know, kind of too intimidated to do all these different things, you know? Yeah. And I'm very, I end up being very chameleon like, and, you know, you can go into any place, you know, the, because my background is so kind of checkered, any, any assignment that I have, I can walk into somebody's home and there, there's going to be some part of my, ba- my background that will connect with their background. I and see. I found that to be true across racial, cultural, social lines. Uh, and it's just such a valuable point of connection. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's a great it's a great it's a great gig. It really is. When when did you kind of uh, start to feel the transition between print and 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 television? Uh, here's some here's some st- here's some stories that. Uh, OK, so like this was not a planned thing. I didn't think TV was going to be in my future. Uh, but um you know, then then the Internet came and like just torched everything that was made of print. Right. So like yeah. that whole world went away uh, and I needed I had kids by then. I needed to pay bills. Um, so I started doing uh, I went over to MSNBC uh, and I started doing Internet television, like streaming before streaming was a thing. Uh, and then that went south pretty quickly. And then um Finally, I got an assignment where I was like covering some early primary in Arizona down by the border. Nobody in the TV world was offering me any kind of deal. And frankly, I was not good on TV. I mean, I was bad. But Katie uh, was like, look, Tony, I know TV. Oh, so you guys were already together at this point. Yeah. I mean, I I skipped over like I condensed like three years there. But like we met in 2015 and she was like she was at that point I was doing some television but it, I uh-huh. was terrible at it and, and I had no contract. I was just sort of like, basically, if like everybody else had a dentist appointment, they were like, Tony, go out there and do that. <laughs> um, Substitute teacher of reporting. Totally, totally. Yeah. And this was back, this was when MSNBC was going through like a, let's put digital writers on, you know, that'll work. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I was, I found myself in Arizona covering something there on the border. And Katie was like, look, you need to take your chunky I'm a writer glasses off and you need to get rid of your corduroy jacket like you're a professor because you don't work for a magazine anymore. You work for TV now. You need to wear a black T-shirt. And before you go out to the border, you need to do 100 push-ups and then you need to put your hair up real big and see how that goes. And I was like, all right, I'll see how that goes. So I did that. I don't even remember what the story was. It was probably terrible. But that very day, ABC News calls. They're like, can we talk to your agent? We loved your reporting down in Arizona. Wow. It's a it's a shallow business on some level. You're like, it's a look yeah, at yeah. the business. They 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 liked something about, you know, maybe it was my my deep and insightful coverage of whatever the hell I was talking about in Arizona. Or maybe it was <laughs> that the you push-ups. don't remember. <laughs> that you don't remember. Yeah. yeah or maybe Arizona E. Maybe it was the push-ups and the big hair. Uh, yeah. And then, and then in one of these like <laughs> and then one of these ridiculous, like no one trusts their own judgment ways. Uh, ABC takes me on for a tryout, uh, but I'm still at MSNBC. And then MSNBC suddenly is like, oh, they want to make an offer. We want to make an offer, too. We love you also. We have always loved you. And I was like, come on. Uh, And then I called CBS and I was like, hey, you know, your competition's offering me stuff, uh, you know, but I really think I actually fit with you. Um, And they were like, "Uh, 
we'll offer you something, but it's going to be the cheapest. And I was like, I'll take it. Oh, wow. You had the sense, uh, you know, to know that that's where you wanted to be. Well, because when my book came out, uh, I was a character on Sunday morning. So they covered, I got to see see. what what CBS did with my actual story. Uh, yeah. And I really respected it. And and yeah. then I watched a lot more of the coverage. I got I got into the history of it. And I was like, wow, if, if there's a place where I feel like I fit, it's CBS. Um, yeah. And so I, I literally took tens of thousands of dollars, which was a lot of money to me, still is, and uh, less money to, to work here because I felt like it was a, the right home for me. And yeah. and I, it, was, it was the right choice. I'm having a great time. Was it a very much an on-the-job kind of training in terms of like learning God. on camera it's stuff? Complete, or did you have it's K- complete Katie? On, oh my God. Well, I had Katie. I had Katie. Yeah. Who, who, Katie is like, you know, as you may recall, she's like the Mickey Mantle of television. And I say that not because like she's a Hall of Famer, although I think she's amazing, uh, but because like the, the story about Mickey Mantle, the baseball player, is supposedly that his, his, his dad threw a ball into the crib at baby Mickey and just yeah. hit the baby in the face until Mickey learned how to catch a ball. And then, you know, like forced the kid to be good. And Katie yeah. grew up in a house with two journalists who were very intense. And they basically yes. made her just be really good. She gets it on a deep level. Um, yeah. And so like, yeah, I had her, but otherwise I didn't have anything. And like, I remember my first story here at CBS, um, there was a guy, you remember like in August of 2016, there was a guy with suction cups who was climbing Trump Tower. Yeah, I do remember that. It was August, so everybody was on vacation. Uh, I just started at CBS, so the evening news was Scott Pelley, dignified, prestigious broadcast that it was, sent me to cover it. And I was the guy who just come from Arizona with the big hair and the pecs. And I did not know how to be on the evening news. So I went out there in a lime green linen shirt, unbuttoned to like here, Sure. Uh, with the big hair, like I was going to Friday, Friday drinks on the rooftop somewhere. And, um, and to me, it was like a fundamentally on serious situation. It's like some joker, he's climbed the building, but like evening news saw it as a possible terror situation. You know, this guy's running for president. Uh, Donald Trump is like, we don't know what this guy's doing. They led, yeah. this was story a one. Yeah. Um, and this, and with I Tony am lime green linen. Of my of Tony Lime Green Linen uh, with the big hair, who's <laughs> never been on network TV before. He's never been wow. on network TV before. Uh, he has no idea. Uh, and when he came to CBS, it was because of the morning show and and Sunday morning, not evening. He didn't know what evening yeah. was. Like I did right, not know right. what I was doing. Uh, and they they come to me first, and I start talking with like a grin on my face, and I start kind of like, you know, playing it almost for laughs. And then to make things worse, not only was I, I didn't look right, my report was wrong, but the producer who was with me, she, in the middle of my report, yells no. And I think, oh, I must, I'm sorry, I must be confused. I must be talking over somebody or I got a bad cue. So on live television to, at that time, 8 million people, I just stopped dead and put my hands in my pocket and I just look at nothing. I'm like, as though I'm rehearsing. And then, like, the control room goes crazy. It turns out she wasn't yelling no. She was giving me a late cue saying go because they, they'd bumped oh. something up. It was such a bad hit on, on all those three levels that I was banned. I was, I was, it was not an official ban, but like, they did not ask me back uh, on the evening news uh, for, right. for many, many months. 
Um, but it ended up being a really good thing because then it did allow me to do the things that I thought I could I could really make an impact with. That sounds like so corny, but like I, it let me do the things that I was good at, which was feature stories for the morning show and cover stories and big things for for, for Sunday morning. And like right, it ended up right. being great. Yeah, well, I mean, great. they kind of did, you know, they dropped you right into the fire. It's kind of on them. And I hope they understood that. Yeah, yeah, I mean? yeah. No, I, I'm going to get an email again. Every time I tell this anecdote, they're always like, they're always like, stop talking about that. You weren't banned. I was like, well, okay, well, show me, show me the. It was a coincidence. <laughs> well, show me when I next appeared on Evening News. Yeah. <laughs> Can't you tell my love? What do you want out of your future? What, where do you, yeah. where do you see yourself heading? I mean, what kind of, what kind of, you know, the ten years from now, kind of, what, what kind of picture do you see of yourself? I want to stay in the job I have for as long um, as I can. I really enjoy it. Uh, I love yeah. Gail. I love Nate. Um, I love the our whole team here. Uh, and it feels just like there's not a better job uh, in yeah. journalism. Like I can't imagine moving to another job in journalism where I have the same camaraderie, the same freedom to pursue stories, the same reach which sounds funny because like you know broadcast tv is changing like if joe biden watched our program tomorrow that would lower the demo <laughs> like that would, that would lower the age group the average viewer age like, you know it's it's not yeah, yeah yeah but but it's still millions of people um and it's a lot of people the other privilege of this job is because it's broadcast and not a podcast or cable you know, a, a decent portion of our viewers fell asleep the night before watching some crime drama and like they just yeah. woke up in the easy chair and are the news that they see on it, my talking face might be the only like straightforward, just the facts news that they catch all day. Yeah. And that's actually a great thing. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I want to keep doing this job, you know, you know, to avoid the long term brain damage of getting up before 5 a.m. in my 50s and beyond, you know, like 10, 15, 20 years from now, I. I know, and Katie also like it, it. We would love to spend some time overseas. Yeah. Uh, my mom, the one of the great gifts, I think uh, she she's she can get me Italian citizenship, so she's going through the process. Like that would be cool. Oh wow. Um, that would be cool. I don't know. That's just sort of. What do you want to do, man? You answer the question. God damn it. What do you want to be? <laughs> well, I I mean, I kind of have talked about it on here a little bit because, I mean, in the last, I'm getting married. I got a new daughter that, you know, I, I, my fiance was a single mom when I met her. And so now I have a three-year-old daughter. I have a 22-year-old son, a 17-year-old daughter, and then a three-year-old. Um, wow. Which is kind with yeah, it's a big gap. And it's kind of Peter Segal, the guy that hosts, uh, he hosts an NPR game show that I'm forgetting the name of right now. Um, and he wrote a great piece about being an, a dad later in life, having kids you know, there being a span of time and then uh, having babies late <laughs> later in life in the Atlantic. And it was really it it's a little saddening because you do feel like as it, with anything, the more you do it, the kind of better you get at it. And having raised teenagers now to go back to baby is it's not that it's easier, but I'm just calmer. I'm more centered. I'm more patient. I'm more present. 
And um, I don't think I did like a bad job with my first two kids, but I do kind of feel like I was not as settled in myself, uh, which is just the nature of life. I think. How if could you, you be right? You're in your, yeah. you're in your, you must've been in your early thirties with the 22 year old or mid thirties. Yeah. Yeah. I'm getting married in June. We bought a house together that we're remodeling that we're, you know, that we're renovating that I have no idea how we're going to pay for all of it. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, and, and I, and I'm kind of, you know, the, the Conan show ended on TBS. I'm doing this podcast and I'm putting lots of irons into, you know, kind of lukewarm fires to see if they'll maybe not go ice cold. So I have no idea. I, I, you know, I had five years ago, I had a future in mind. You know, that was one of the, that's one of the things about getting divorced. I, I don't know if, you know, I had a future in mind. It was, I didn't know exactly, but I had a pretty good picture of what it was going to be like. It, it's not that anymore. It's, it's, it's different and I don't know what it is. So I'm kind of rewriting my own future. So, you know, it's, yeah, it's easy for me to sit here and say, what, you know, what do you want out of the future? But, you know, I mean, healthy and happy, I guess, yeah. you know, it's kind of, you know, those kind of things. You're, you're, um, what you say about divorce though, I mean, you know, divorce really is like, it, it is like a forest fire in your life. Like it just takes yeah. you know, all the vegetation, everything is, the landscape is scarred and changed. And then like everything has to grow back anew. Um, at least that was my experience of it. And so, yeah, yeah one thing where I hope to be like, I, I love my wife and I intend to be a good husband. Uh, you know, it's not that I was a bad husband before, but like, I was definitely a youthful, stupid person in ways that I'm not anymore. Katie always talks yeah. about how, like she tells her older friends, she's like, she's like, stop looking, stop excluding from the dating pool guys who have been divorced because in fact, they've learned their lessons. They are better. They yes. can cook now. They're, they yes. clean better. Like they're, yes. they're better humans. Well, you know, this podcast, you know, the last question, what have you learned? Uh, you know, like, what do you, what do you think? What wisdom can you impart to my hungry viewers, listeners, whatever? What have I learned? Oh my God. I'm going to flub this. No, nah, there's no flubbing. No, I think there is flubbing, you know, because I actually don't feel like I've learned anything, which is the hardest part. And I've been living in fear of the the the, the, the this big clothes uh, all morning because I don't I don't feel like I'm at an end. And so I feel like uh, this is an unscheduled exam. And as a result, I don't I don't have the wisdom ready. Uh, and so maybe there's wisdom in that, um, that that what I've learned in my career is the worst moments and biggest fuck ups have had a way of becoming advantages and opportunities. And that, that same thing is true in my personal life. The, the biggest disadvantages of my childhood, the biggest fuck-ups in my personal life have become, in the, in the full sweep of time, advantages and opportunities. And that keeps me excited about the future. So that's what I would impart to your viewers. Well, that's, and see, that's good. You didn't flub anything. Remain open. And, you know, make lemonade out of lemons. That's, you know. Well, that's a, that, that, did you just come up with that? Make lemonade out of lemons? I, yeah, I did. I did. That's really good. I did. It's a good one. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have a line of lemonade coming out. So it's, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. it's, uh, it's all subtle marketing. Are you, are you still taking dropping. angel investors on that? Because um, <laughs> I'd love to get in on that. Absolutely. Absolutely. You can get in on the ground floor for 150 bucks. 150 Or... If you know somewhere that where there's an unguarded lemon tree, then uh, 
you, you're in. You know, you know, one other thing I've learned I'll add is that um, when I die, I want to become human compost and have a lemon tree grown with the soil that was me. This sounds no, crazy. Yeah, t- it sounds nuts. Yeah. But there's a lady in Washington state who has come up with a way, an alternative to, to dying as we know it. Uh, not, mm-hmm. not cremated, not tombstone burial, but yeah. human composting. I think that's great. It'll never be a morning TV segment, but it can live on this podcast. I endorse <laughs> human composting. Yeah, there we go. Tony DeCopel of uh, CBS, uh, the mornings. Yes. And, uh, yeah. And uh, and tune in. And it would be very helpful if you were under seventy when you tune in. Yeah. It would be really good for Tony because uh, you know the advertisers apparently they don't want they want the young demographic. Yeah. Sixty five. 58, you know, right. like feeling it, feeling their oats. That's the right. age they're looking for. To the people that don't need a catheter just yet. Yeah, catheter advertisement, that's for cable. We're broadcast. <laughs> oh, well, ooh la la. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Tony, thank you so much. And uh, thank all of you out there for listening. And I'll be back next week. Bye-bye. Three Questions with Andy Richter is a Team Coco production. It is produced by Sean Doherty and engineered by Rob Schulte. Additional engineering support by Eduardo Perez and Joanna Samuel. Executive produced by Joanna Salataroff, Adam Sachs, and Jeff Ross. Talent booking by Paula Davis, Gina Batista, and Maddie Ogden. Research by Alyssa Grawl. Don't forget to rate and review and subscribe to the Three Questions with Andy Richter wherever you get your podcasts. Can't you tell my love's a-growing? Can't you feel it ain't a-showing? Oh, you must be a-knowing. I've got a big, big love. This has been a Team Coco production in association with Earwolf.